the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to my friend, Frank Forensic. Frank earned his degree in biology from Stanford University. He's an internationally recognized expert on health and human adaptation. As an engaging speaker and movement teacher, he brings a unique perspective to the human predicament and offers practical solutions for some of the most pressing problems of our age. In our discussion, we focus on three key areas, namely, a big picture view of ancient bodies meeting the modern world, the said principle, and functional training for the body and the whole organism. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So Frank, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Well, I always put things in the context of human history and the idea of self-reliance would have been actually pretty rare because usually you are part of a group and you're part of a tribe and you're out in the bush trying to stay alive with other people. So self-reliance would have been something that would have been maybe kind of unusual in human history and definitely worth having a conversation about. But uh, the number one survival skill was making your tribe functional and working in that context. So that's a little bit of a different take up until this point. So we can, we can explore that. I think one of the things that we should maybe talk about first is let's talk about what you actually trying to do with people. What is your mission? Because that will give the context for the things that we're going to talk about. Right. Well, I've done a, a variety of training efforts with people and I, I did a lot of work with you might call it uh, martial arts and play-based fitness and that kind of thing. And it's all been really exciting. But as I've grown into this and studied human history more and more, I'm realizing that we're in this context now where people are struggling to adapt to this modern world, this alien environment. And that's where I see the focus of my training going forward. It's like, what is the nature of the modern world and how do we prepare people to deal with that? Because uh, particular sports and particular movement modalities may not address that directly. So I ask questions about the world. What are the characteristics of the modern world and how do we train to meet those? I think that's really important. So unpacking that a little bit and moving into some of the talking points that we said we would focus on in this in this chat is let's sketch out the scope of big history and human history because i think that plays into what you've just been talking about right i always get back to big history and the person that i really follow on this is david christian 
I believe San Diego State University. He's got a marvelous audio series um, by the teaching company. It's, it's really quite good. And that's the whole history of the universe. As far as we know, 13.7 billion years. And of course, we don't need to talk about all of that today, but it also encourages us to talk about big human history. And for that, we can talk about the history of Homo sapiens, the 300,000 years that we've been on this planet, or we can talk about hominid history, which is, is bigger, of course, that would be 6 million years of history. And by taking that big perspective, we learn a lot about our bodies. We learn that our bodies are sculpted by evolution to live in these outdoor wild environments. And that sets the stage for every conversation that we're going to have about the body. It's like we are made to live outdoors in these wild natural environments. Every detail of our anatomy and our physiology and even our psychology is the way it is because of that demand on the body. So that's the big history approach that I look for. So what would you say is the difference? I think this is where you're alluding to this idea of what's normal and what's abnormal. You know, if we look back historically and we look at our, our evolutionary process and what we were for most of the time we were on this planet, what was that and how has it changed and what do you see it being now? And probably that's where the abnormal side comes into it, I'm guessing. <laughs> right. And if you really think about your life in a paleo setting, and paleo simply means old, old human history, you would have had a certain set of conditions, the tribal living, the outdoor living, the, the frequent use of your own physicality, um, lots of movement every day, lots of dependence on sensation and knowing the natural history of your bioregion. All these things would have been very normal. Face-to-face um, uh, -face social interaction with people, that would have been normal. So now you compare that with what we experience in the modern world, and so much of we, what we experience now is distinctly abnormal. This sedentary living, this indoor living, all of this is abnormal. The kind of social ambiguity that we have now where people are always making up and breaking up and our tribes are shifting here and there, that's all profoundly abnormal. And the amount of chronic stress that we deal with now is extremely abnormal. In, in the paleo, the stress would have been episodic and sometimes acute, but you could always go back to camp and rest for a few days and the stress would go away and then you could go back out and do another hunt in, in contrast to, to what we have now, which is a chronic stress. So that's, that's a little taste of what's normal and what's abnormal in, for the human experience. I think a lot of people, if they're really honest with themselves, if they may not be able to label it as such or just maybe define it as such, but they feel that ancient loss. They feel that there's this disconnect. Would you agree with that? Right. Right. Yeah. And it's either conscious or unconscious. And I think for most people, it's unconscious because we feel this anxiety, this depression, this anger, all of these sort of psycho-spiritual afflictions that people have now. And that's because we still have, the body still has one foot in the paleo and one foot now in the modern world. And as 
the modern world becomes increasingly developed and increasingly refined. Now, the distance between those two is getting greater and greater each day. So we really literally feel ourselves being torn apart. And that is why, see, all these afflictions that we have, the anxiety and depression, the insult, all these things, I don't believe are neurotransmitter deficiencies in the brain. I think these are just a consequence of trying to live in this alien environment. It's a fake environment, right? I mean, if, and if I just think about how most people move around in the Western world, it's very linear, it's in straight lines, it's everything it wouldn't have been in the primitive times. And, you know, I think we need to keep coming back to this that most people forget that this part of modern, the modern world, modern history is a very small moment in time if we look historically of you know being human at least as we understand humans as they are now and as you noted is that even though we might have done all these great things building skyscrapers and so on the brain that we have is still the same brain of our ancient ancestors and we need to i think we need to go back and and look at that more closely and i'm in agreement with you i think a lot of the things that people are struggling with the anxiety and the depression and and so on for some people it might be chemical but i think for a lot of people they don't realize that it's because they're in this fake environment. They're not in an environment where it's actually healthy for them. And it's one of the reasons why you often hear now, and there's a lot of great research and you know about this, that's coming out that's saying, actually, if you go out into the wild, out into the outdoors, how important that actually is for your physical, emotional, and psychological health. Right. It's in effect going home. That's something that, uh, that John Muir used to talk about quite a bit, but there's some great, implications of this conversation because once you look at mismatch and you look at the fact that we're we're trying to live in this alien environment you start to realize that wow a lot of people are effectively traumatized by this disconnect and it's fair to say that a lot of people on this planet are experiencing trauma from this mismatch a lot of people are experiencing ptsd from this mismatch and then the other implication here is that I think it leads us to be more compassionate for the people that we see struggling because we're all, <laughs> we're all in this now and we're all trying to make sense of this situation that is totally unprecedented. I mean, nobody's ever experienced this before. So we turn to experts and even the experts are flummoxed by this whole thing because we don't have a track record. We, we've never taken a species before and trying to, um, to refine its circumstances back to what it was. So it's, it's a tremendous challenge. I can relate to this in some way because, as you know, and you've been there because we've, we've done training together, which was fantastic. You know, I lived most of my life in South Africa and Johannesburg, which is one of the most violent cities on the planet. And what I noticed was that when I was away from Johannesburg and possibly out in, in the bush or wherever it was in, in, in the wild, so to speak, I, I was always aware of this background anxiety, like a hum, like a vibration that was just running there all the time. I was never aware of it when I was actually in Johannesburg, but when I was away from it, it became very, uh, very acute. And then last year, because of some life changes and things that happened in my personal life, I moved to Thailand and I moved to an area in Thailand, which is a sleepy fishing village in the middle of nowhere. And it took me quite a while, actually, just to feel comfortable because I kept feeling this anxiety, that background hum. 
and I wasn't too sure what to do about it. I kind of felt out of sort, almost lost. But once I started just, you know, allowing myself to open up to the new place that I found myself in, which is very much what we've been talking about, very laid back, not busy, lots of open spaces to go to, walking on the beach. I really started to feel my emotional and psychological health improve. Yeah, it's so much of this gets back to the metaphor of the frog in the warming water, because we can we can grow up in an urban environment and we can adapt. Humans are so good at this and we adapt little by little and, you know, maybe the noise is increasing, maybe the stress is increasing and the sedentary living and the computer time and all these things. And we adapt and we adapt, we adjust and we adjust. And eventually we get cooked alive because we are so good at adapting. And that's the paradox of this whole thing. So, that's why I encourage people to take an activist approach and say, look, the frog has got to jump out of the water at some point. And it sounds like that's precisely what you did. And we can also do that in smaller ways you know, by, by getting out, by recognizing the alien environment for what it is and trying to coach ourselves into new behaviors. So Frank, that's, that leads to my next question is that let's say somebody's listening to this and they are stuck in an urban environment and there really isn't places for them to go to, or maybe they just don't have the financial means to go and spend some time in the wild. What would you suggest? Where should they start? Right. Well, that, it's kind of an, an unsolvable problem for a lot of people. And that's, and it's really unjust because if you are if you're affluent and you can afford to get out of the urban environment, then, then you're okay. But a lot of people don't have that ability. So with that in mind, you can maybe engineer some behaviors that will help. And, and we know what these are. I mean, this is no big secret. The, the idea of getting plenty of, of physical movement, that's crucial, especially outdoor physical movement, of meditation, of time with some kind of a community, whatever it happens to be. And this is where the martial arts are so vital because a typical dojo is a community. And that's a place where you can go and you can be surrounded by, by friendly people who are have a shared interest. So these things become even more important um, in this alien environment. What is your take on what seems to be people addicted to technology? I think that plays a big part of this. One is obviously being in this alien environment, a city, which isn't what we were for most of the time on the planet. But now we are addicted to things like Instagram and Facebook, that, and that definitely lends itself into making people more stressed out, even if they don't see it that way. Right. Well, it's part of this desperate longing that people have to connect with one another. And that's another paradox of the modern world where we have almost 8 billion people on the planet now. And we have fallen out of authentic contact with one another because I think, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is that so much of our society has become transactional, where so much of what we do now is buying and selling products and services. So people are either providers or customers, and we spend all day doing these transactions. And those are artificial. Those are fake. Those are not genuine human relations. And so we have this craving to contact with one another in face-to-face settings, 
with an adequate amount of time to really listen to one another's stories. And since we were kind of deprived of that, so we turned to technology and it, uh, it's really not very helpful. <laughs> So one of the things that, and I agree with you, so one of the things that I notice is that, that, that need for connection, but it comes out completely wrong in social media, right? Instead of reaching out to people and connecting, we see people diverging into meaningless squabbles over silly things, or just continuously trying to attract attention that is more ego-based than genuine, let's connect and let's have a conversation. I mean, I don't know. I don't see a lot of great conversations happening in the social media space, to be honest. <laughs> right. Now, Zoom is a little bit different because we can have this actual visual contact with one another. And that's that's great. But so much of the social media now, uh, people can be anonymous. And when you're not, that's an absolutely abnormal state of, of social interaction, because when you were in a normal tribe, you were never anonymous. Everybody knew who you were all the time. So now you can lurk in the background of a conversation and then people can be nasty to one another. And then we get this polarization, especially here in the US and, and I'm sure elsewhere. So yeah, it's, it's not a real good thing. No, not at all. So let's pivot a little bit here and let's talk about the said principle specific adaptions to impose demands. What is that? Why is that important? How does it play into the conversation that we're having? I had been in the training world, in the martial art world for quite a long time before I ever heard this. And I heard this at a, a conference I went to, it was a physical therapy conference. And they talked about the said principle as being really important for rehabilitation and athletic training. And the idea is if you want a certain result out of the body, you have to train it specifically for that thing. And the, the body is incredibly capable of engineering these very minute, precise adaptations to meet the challenge that is imposed upon it. So that that is the said principle. And you see it everywhere. You, you can imagine a set of identical twins and you put one of them on a running program and one on a swimming program, for example, and then you let them go for six months and you measure the changes in their bodies. And you wouldn't at all be surprised to see that the, those who were on the running program had a certain set of adaptations and that those on a swimming program had a different set of adaptations, perfectly specific to the demands to the challenge and so this is what it's such an exciting idea for me because this okay find out what the nature of the the environment is that you want to adapt to and then train specifically for that environment and then the body will follow along so that i think is the coach's job the trainer's job is to describe the environment and then craft a training program specifically for that. And it's, in a sense, it's really simple. So while you were talking, I was thinking, can we apply the said principle to the psychological realm? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you get used to things by experience. Experience is the language of the body. And it's safe to assume that if you train to play a basketball game, or if you train to be in a certain kind of setting, 
that the psychology will follow along with that. So, yeah, absolutely. And this is something that athletic coaches know very well, that you, you train your athletes for the postseason. You train your athletes to perform in the finals. You get them ready. And then if you're a spectator, you always bet on the team that's been there before because they have the physical and the psychological adaptations by virtue of their experience. So it's, it's super important. And we should be applying this at every level, including the schools. So the schools should be on board with this of assessing reality, uh, coming up with a list of demands, of challenges that the modern world presents, and then training people specifically to meet those demands. So one of the things, of course, that people struggle with when we're talking about this is what maybe we can describe it. It's described in different ways. The monkey mind, maybe a frantic mind is another way to describe it, where people, because of this unnatural space that they find themselves in in the modern world, have a tendency to always be in the past or the future. And because they're always in those two places, they miss the present moment. They miss the experience of being here right now. And definitely, if I think about the said principle applied to the psychology, definitely one of the things that people could apply and train is meditation or something similar to that. Mindfulness is also really good. What is your take on that? Right. Well, these are all great ideas and they're ancient ideas and we tend to associate them with, with Eastern traditions which of course that's a big theme, but it doesn't need to be that way exactly. I think it, um, it's a question of engagement and immersion in something that you really care about. And that can be any number of things. If you really care about auto mechanics or woodworking or body surfing or whatever it is, if you're really passionate about that thing, it's much easier to drop into that state of complete engagement and immersion. So I, I agree, it's totally valuable and it's essential, I think, for happiness. But you've got to, you've got to learn enough about your life and enough about yourself to find out what your sense of meaning and purpose is, what really is valuable to you and then the rest of it will fall into place and then that's where you find yourself kind of losing your 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 sense of time and falling into the moment so it's wonderful when it happens so i was talking on another episode with a good friend of mine richard blonner and he was talking about a value-driven life and I think once people start taking stock of what they really value, they'll realize that a lot of the things that they engage with in the modern world doesn't lend to that, especially adds to their anxiety. And so I think the practice of meditation is a good starting point for people because it's something that anybody can do and you don't need anything else other than yourself and your own mind. The whole idea of steadying your thought process and bringing your, your thinking into the present and not attaching to the past or the future and being in a space where whatever arises, you're able to absorb it without judgment is a powerful experience because that's the one way I think that people can actually start making some inroads into overcoming some of these things we've been talking about, the constant anxiety and the, the kind of depressive thoughts. Right. Yeah. One person I really like on this stuff is um, a Buddhist writer named Pima Chodron. And she talks about her meditation practice 
And it's, it's very simple. It's just returning to the breath. The mind gets confused. The mind goes off on these tangents. Okay, come back to the breathing. And the phrase she uses is soften and stay. Soften and stay. Come back to the breath. Um, another teacher that I've, I've listened to, his advice is don't try and change anything. So in other words, you're sitting down and whatever your body generates, whatever your mind generates, don't even try and change it. Just return to the breath. Whatever you're experiencing right now is the right thing. Feel what you're feeling. Don't try and change anything and stay with the breath. These are, these are great principles to work with. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Pema Chandran and she's, she's a really great uh, teacher. I've watched quite a few of her videos and there's a lot of great stuff with her on YouTube if people want to go and watch that. But what I like about her is her groundedness where she doesn't pretend that after how many decades of practicing meditation that she's got it down and it's that easy, right? She, she recognizes the difficulty. And I think that's one of the things I was talking about in, a, in another episode is that we're in a state where people want everything right now. They don't want to feel uncomfortable. But I think if you're really going to make those fundamental changes, the positive changes in your life, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and that nothing of value ever comes without some kind of resistance. Yeah, and that's something we understand because we trained in the martial arts and we know how important it is to, to keep a regular practice. And it doesn't have to be every day necessarily, but it has to be consistent over a long period of time and, and it does work. So one of the things I know that you, you, you've said is you're talking about why most sports and practices are only semi-relevant. What do you mean by that? Most of these things are movement specialties. So if you look at any number of modern sports, a lot of these were developed and invented maybe in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and they don't really connect with the primal human predicament, the paleo, or the challenge of the modern world. I mean, for example, baseball. Okay, baseball, great sport, a lot of fun, great activity to do. But the ability, if you break it down, the ability to hit a ball with a bat, does that have any relevance outside of the baseball stadium? And the, the answer is no. I mean, the average person doesn't need to hit a ball with a bat. We have other, <laughs> other challenges that we have to meet. And it's the same with most other sports. Um, swimming would be a good example. Is it good to know how to swim? Yes. It, and is it pleasant? Yes. It's a good thing. But it's not altogether relevant to most people's lives. So, and most sports are that way. And what I argue for over and over again is maximal relevance how can we make our conditioning and our training appropriate to modern conditions? And that's, that's the challenge of our day, I think. I think what you're talking about here is this idea that you've mentioned about training for reality. And there's a two-step process, right? Do you maybe want to just outline that for the listeners? Right. Well, you just make an assessment. You say, okay, what, is the, what are the conditions that our students are going to have to live in? And you make a list. Well, sedentary living, computer time, having to drive cars, how to deal with the ambiguous social environment, all of these 
these characteristics of the modern world, that's step one, you make your list. And then step two, figure out exercises, practices, games, even whatever it is to try and help people adapt to those circumstances. And that, that's the basic two step that, that I think all coaches and teachers sh should be using. So one of the things I was thinking about you, and I'd like to get your take on this is maybe we can broadly put it under a category of primal skills. I think if we go back historically and we're talking about ancient people and there are still, if we're going to call it ancient people in the modern world, right? If we go into the Amazon basin and places like that, who are still applying the skills that our ancestors did hundreds of years ago, if not thousands of years ago, these primal skills, if people took the time to develop them, I think that there would be a positive uptake there, not just only in knowing what those skills are, but I do think that there would be a unconscious adaptation, a positive process that would come out of that because I think that these things are encoded in our DNA, almost what Jung talked about as archetypal. And I, I think part of the problem is and why we feel this, this angst is because we are no longer connected to that. And it's encoded in our DNA. I mean, and there's no proof for that. I mean, I can't say that, you know, scientifically, but that's just my gut feeling. And I just noticed that myself, you know, as a, as a martial artist, as you know, I feel that that's a primal skill. And when I'm practicing martial arts, it brings up in, in me feelings and sensations and a sense of well-being that I find very difficult to achieve in any kind of other modern experience. You know, so you can't compare the feeling that I would get on the floor training martial arts compared to if I went into one of these modern gyms, which really just makes me feel like I'm in a casino with a treadmill. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's absolutely right. And one thing I've written about a little bit in the past is my experience being, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old and early camping trip to the mountains where... Uh, um, our parents took us up to this this beautiful little place and we went down to the river and there were these big boulders and I'd never been in contact with these big granite boulders before and when I started to scramble on the boulders it, I was delighted it was wonderful I said my body is made for this and it had a sense of feeling of being profoundly familiar and in a really deep sense. In other words, my body already knows how to do this. And that's why it is so delightful. And I think we can get the same sense with these primal skills, especially just going out and walking. I mean, that, that was, that was the number one activity of, of native people go out into the forest or the grassland on a hunt or an exploration, have an adventure, walk where the terrain leads you, not necessarily even on a trail. Um, that feels right and it feels familiar. And that feeling is, is not just trivial. It's not just an emotion. No, they, you're feeling something ancient with that. So yeah, absolutely. What I noticed was it was a little while ago, um, you know, growing up in, in Africa, but I, was stuck in cities for ages. I just found that I was traveling from one place to the next and it was just one city after another city. And I went away with my sons and we went into the African bush. And what I noticed was that it took a little bit of time to acclimatize. You know, I really felt disconnected and I couldn't really figure out the terrain properly. You know, just even the rocks and the way that they looked was, it just was blurry. Actually, I couldn't really get 
focus on it. It took a couple of days for me to kind of come back into that. And I think that's was kind of interesting to me that, you know, you can lose that so quickly and get so stuck into this kind of linear lifestyle. As I noted earlier, you know, if we look at most people's movement patterns, it literally is just in straight lines, which is the most unnatural thing ever to be moving in. Right. Yeah. The physical therapists uh, talk a lot about the planes of movement. So you've got your sagittal plane, which is straight ahead, forward and back. And that's kind of a um, infantry kind of metaphor. And then you've got your frontal plane, left, right. And so now things are getting a little bit more interesting. But then it's the transverse plane of the twisting and turning where the magic really starts to happen. Uh, and that's, that's common to dance and it's common in martial arts. And it, uh, it's a big theme in physical therapy as well. It's uh, the body loves the transverse plan. So, yeah. So let's pivot to, to martial arts. And, and I know that you've practiced and uh, so it's, you know, as, as a martial artist myself, I'm always interested in talking about this topic, the role of martial arts, reality or metaphor. What do you mean by that? It's very clearly both. And this was a big conversation when I studied Aikido because Aikido is, by some people's reckoning, not a very practical martial art. There's a lot of flowing movements that you probably would not see on the street. And nevertheless, <laughs> it's a lot of fun to do. And it builds this idea of a relational um contact with another human being that can be really therapeutic and really healing. So th that is a great metaphor. And then other martial arts, of course, are much more reality-based and you might say street-based. And there's something to be said for that as well. And once again, I encourage people to, to look at whatever environment they happen to be in. Because, for example, if you live in Johannesburg, the the reality of physical confrontation is probably a lot higher. And that's where you would need more of a reality-based martial art. So, again, taking a look at your circumstances. If you live uh, where I live in Bend, Oregon, the chances of being physically attacked are almost zero. And so you can explore other things. So this might be more philosophical, but one of the things that I've noticed just as an interesting side note is that when we talk about this reality based aspect of martial arts, and that's kind of the term that it goes under reality based self-defense is what's very, very common. I find it interesting that most of those schools where they're the most popular are not actually in the most violent places of the world. If anything, they are in the, in the middle to upper class neighborhoods of the world in the places that you least need those skill sets. Well, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I guess that speaks to um, the paranoia of affluent people, perhaps. I, I, I don't know. That's really interesting. I do think that's part of it. And so I've been, you know, I, as you know, I travel around the world and that's part of what I do is I teach. I just call it martial arts as a general term, but I teach it all over the world. And a lot of the schools in the past, when I've been, been invited to these schools that are under this banner of reality-based self-defense, they are not in the impoverished neighborhoods of the world. I've always found that really interesting. But I also find there's a definite paranoia there, almost a sense of the affluence breeds this idea of everybody's out to get my shit kind of thing, you know? But actually, they don't even have to close their doors. They're not like, they live in a neighborhood like you're describing, where actually the chances of something happening is very, very slim. 
And I find that quite sad, actually, because I think there is an important reason why we describe it as martial arts. Now, of course, I, I, I'm a firm advocate that whatever you train needs to be functional. I don't think that the personal transformation that martial arts has to offer is possible unless what you do is functional. But I do think that there needs to be a balance. And I find that in the modern world of martial arts, it's really skewed to one side now where it's all about fighting. It's all about competing. It's about who I can or cannot beat. And the art side of it has been lost or at least been hidden and put aside in favor of a more practical approach. And I think there is something to be seriously lost in doing that. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, the, the MA, MMA scene on the television, that's become a spectacle. And it's, um, I suppose, a form of entertainment. But um, I, it doesn't appeal to me. And I want to, I want to live with people. And I want to affiliate with people. And I, I want to love people. And sure, you might need to hit people sometimes, but that's not, that's not the main event. So what I've always found interesting is that if you look, and not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, if you look at ancient warrior culture, many of the warriors, especially if you look at Japan as a good example of that, these men had spent their entire lives practicing the skills of martial to be warriors and fight on the battlefield. Coming out of that, if they were lucky to survive, ended up living a life of, of the spiritual path. And I think the reason is, is because they got so obsessed into the martial that the part that they thought was going to help them transform their inadequacies or enable them to overcome their shadow never arrived for them. And so at the end of that, they ended up going down the spiritual path. And I keep thinking to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually do it in the martial art experience rather than having a situation where you come to the end of fighting, realizing that the fighting has actually done nothing for you on a spiritual level. Yes, you might be able to kick somebody's ass, but so what, what does that matter? And is that really going to matter down the road when you're 70 years old? Are you going to be that person that's talking about your war stories? Ultimately, I think there needs to be something more about it. And that doesn't take away. I think this is where people get it wrong. They think that in order to, be, to have martial arts as a self-mastery experience, maybe is a better way than using the word spiritual because people don't like that. But to use it as self-mastery doesn't mean that you have to forego being functional. In actual fact is that if you integrate the art, then you're able to use what you have learned on the mat in every aspect of your life. Coming back to what I said about, I find it so interesting that these kind of hardcore extreme reality-based self-defense schools are always in the most middle to upper-class neighborhoods of the world, where you don't have to use that physical skill set, but you, you're going to have to deal with people that annoy you, a boss that's just a pain in the butt, whatever that may be. And so are you able to you know, take on the martial arts of everyday life more skillfully is what I'm suggesting. Right. Well, one thing I think that's going on here is that young men in particular, but even young women growing up in the modern world, we still have this, this really powerful need and desire to find out what we're made of. And we want to test ourselves. We want to go out and have an adventure and see what we're made of. And the problem with the modern world is that 
it's too easy in a lot of cases. And when it's that easy, how do you find out what you're made of? So these young men have this lust for adventure. We want to go out and do something outrageous and dangerous and risky just to find out what we're made of. And so this is the appeal for extreme sports, the appeal for things like um, extreme rock climbing. We saw this um, free solo ascent of El Capitan by Alex Honnold recently. And these kinds of things, plus the you know reality-based martial arts, MMA, all of these things, people have this lust to find out what they're made of which I think is legit. I think it, I've had that lust many times in my life. So we need to provide that in some way, but keep it balanced too. So when you were saying that, I was thinking about, because you mentioned this need for adventure. So the thing that popped into my mind was Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. Everybody wants to go on a hero's journey, but I think what's important to maybe note here is that Joseph Campbell was very clear on this. He said, yes, you're going to go through the trials and tribulations. You're going to find a teacher. You're going to go on a quest. You're going to have to confront whatever you've decided to confront, be, be whatever that is. But ultimately, you are never a hero unless you come back to the society that you came from and bring back whatever you have discovered, the boom of whatever you have discovered through your experience and bring it back in a positive way that it changes other people's lives for the better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That, that, that metaphor of return is huge. And what did you learn on the mountain when you went up and you had that vision quest? Come back and tell the people about it. Have the narrative. And, um, and it's good for everybody that way. So I think that's where the, where the problem lies, right, is that we're in a situation where people are pursuing things, sure, for the adventure, but it's really a narcissistic pursuit where it's all about them without any consideration for anybody else. And so, yes, they think that they're going to become a hero, but they don't actually become the hero because they never come back and contribute. They never come back and bring the lessons back to their tribe, so to speak, right? And so they end the adventure never fully comprehending what the entire experience was about, the transformative aspect of it. And so they keep continuously trying to seek more and more extreme experiences in hopes that hopefully after this one, I'm going to wake up the next morning and the skeletons in the closet, my shadows are going to disappear, but they don't. Right. And this is what I've taken to calling the hardening of the self. And this idea that throughout the 20th, 20th century, the um, the psychological measurement of narcissism has shown that to go up throughout throughout the the second half of the 20th century and new york times columnist david brooks has called this the big me the big me culture that we've created now and that there's so much emphasis on individual achievement individual welfare and now we have personalized everything and it's not, that's really abnormal in human history to do that. Yeah, this, the, this speaks to what you said right in the beginning when I asked you, I said, you know, Frank, if I, if I asked you, what does the word self-reliance mean to you? You made the point of saying, well, historically speaking, you wouldn't just be an individual. You're always part of a group. Maybe we can nuance it and say we, we needed individuals with skills and every individual will have certain skill sets that the others didn't but 
it was required that collectively we work together. So there was maybe a measure of self-reliance, but it was a self-reliance that was based on community and it was based on giving back. And I think this is the thing that we're missing, right? And this is what we're talking about is that, yes, there are people doing lots of great things, but it's only in the service of themselves. Right, right. And that's, that's not just abnormal. I think for indigenous people would look at that and say that that is um, pathological. And it's even criminal to a certain extent to focus all your attention on you. What about the tribe? I mean, that, that's, that's bad behavior. <laughs> and we seem to have normalized that kind of bad behavior. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is one of the points that you, you said we should talk about is the idea of stress practices. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, stress is such an interesting subject because it's, it's right at the interface of mind and body. And we have a pretty good body of knowledge about how stress works in the body and how the stress hormones work. And we know that there's an inverse shape U curve. So that in other words, small amounts of stress are really beneficial for the body and for cognition and memory, all of these things. A little bit of stress is great. And teachers and coaches should recognize that and understand that. But then when the curve goes over the top, when it goes over the tipping point, then stress becomes dangerous and pathological, not just to the tissue of the body, but to, uh, to cognition, psychology, the whole thing. So there's always a sweet spot in stress. But what makes it really interesting for me is that there's, there's a paradoxical approach here you can either, there's a yin side and a yang side. So the, the yang side is to resolve the stress by increasing your power and control in the world. So this, you might call that a hard style where you just get your work done. All the stuff that is bothering you in your office or your workplace, all the loose ends that are hanging, you go and you complete those tasks, you get them done. That's a good way to make your stress go away. And in that context, it's not going to help to think about yourself laying on a beach somewhere and, and, and being very relaxed. No, that's, that's not the solution in that context. You get the work done. But the yin side now is all about acceptance and relaxation and being at one with your circumstances and there that's where you relinquish control that's where you yield so two very different approaches that i think are both valuable and if you're going to be a complete human being i think you need to master both of those what would be some tools what would you say are some basic things that people could focus on in just getting to get a grips of their stress more effectively or manage it more efficiently? Well, on the Yang side, these are well-known time management tools, things like calendars and various task management things you can do and triage. When you look at your desk in your office, does it, is it piled up with papers and things to do? No, clean it up. That, that's, you know, make the decisions that are necessary to simplify your life. So you have a sense of power and control. So though that's all familiar territory and you got to do it. But then on the inside, the, the side where you relinquish now 
this is where the arts of meditation come in, solitude, time in nature, getting out and just walking and letting go of all the stuff that was bothering you in your office. And the, those tools, I think, are pretty well known also. We just have to use them. Yeah, I think that's important. So to end off, Frank, if you could give us some parting words, what would you want to leave with and just have people consider just as we end this interview? Well, I think that the thing is becoming more and more obvious right now is that you have to be your own coach in a lot of this because as we talked about, we are in unexplored territory right now. This idea of mismatch is unprecedented in human history and everybody's circumstance in that is pretty unique. So it's nice if you're affluent, you can afford to hire a life coach to help you with this stuff. That, that would be wonderful. But really, you got to sit down and say, okay, what kind of circumstances do I need to train for? And coach yourself for that. And take charge of your training and make it happen for you. And that's what, uh, that's what I try and do. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.